Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. About a year ago, we recorded an episode of this podcast about the so-called protein folding problem. That is, the challenge of determining the 3D shapes that proteins form and the functions that those shapes serve. That episode was prompted by the progress that Google had made using artificial intelligence to solve the protein folding problem using its AlphaFold system. Last month, the team behind that project was awarded a breakthrough prize for their work. That is a prize that is awarded each year for achievements in life sciences, physics, and mathematics. In light of this recognition, we have decided to re-edit and re-release our discussion from a year ago. I was joined for that discussion by Drs. Nicole Buwan and Juan Sue, both professors here at the University of Nebraska. In our conversation, we discuss the protein folding problem and explore what it actually is and why it's so important and challenging, and the implications of Google's work in solving it. I would like to just start our first part of the discussion today, figuring out what the heck this protein folding problem is. And I'm going to start with the simplest, what I think is the simplest question. What is a protein? So I can go ahead and take that. Um, (laughs) So proteins are one of the major sort of macromolecules that make up all living organisms. There are chains of amino acids, which are these tiny little chemicals that contain carbon and nitrogen and a couple other things. So cells link these together to create polymers that then fold up into little shapes. And these shapes can do all sorts of things that cells need to do. They can carry out chemical reactions. We call these types of proteins enzymes. Uh, Other proteins, they connect to each other to create the structures that make up cells. Um, A lot of proteins that are in our cells are too small to see, but some of them we can't actually see with the naked eye, such as, you know, you might've seen spider silk. So that's one type of protein that spiders will spin out and and produce into a web. Um, And of course, meat that we all like to eat is a compilation of, you know, those are animal cells that have a whole lot of protein in them, muscles, um, things like that. But there's a lot of different types of proteins that every type of cell makes in nature. Probably most listeners think of protein as that stuff that they need to eat a bunch of. Uh, Some of it comes from meat. Some of it might come from uh, plants or impossible burgers, I guess. And in our minds, I I think it's just protein. It's all the same stuff. But protein, it sounds like it takes a vast range of different forms. And when it's my rough understanding, when we eat protein, that all gets broken down back into these amino acids that the body can then reassemble into whatever proteins it needs. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, I'm patting myself on the back for uh, getting that far. Um, So Joanne, perhaps you can uh, uh, tell us uh, what's going on with this folding part of the protein folding uh, issue. Yes. Actually, in a nutshell, it's a shape of the protein actually determine the function, which probably the most important thing we want to learn in biology. So, well, the shape actually is determined by the primary sequence of amino acid. So uh, we learn from structure biology that uh, protein change their shape all the time, but eventually the, the, the sequence of amino acid have to twist and fold up into a certain shape to gain a specific function. 
So that is a wider reason we want to study the shape of a particular protein. And when we're talking about all these proteins and shapes, how much variety is there? I, I've seen some pictures or what I assume are computer-generated images looking through some of the papers on this topic. And these things look like really bizarre abstract art, like really fancy uh, glass-blown, really pretty uh, sorts of things with ribbons. And they're, they're not simple shapes. Not at all. So... I can't even think about how many types of proteins are because <laughs> um, there's everything from the individual amino acids to peptides of just, uh, you know, 5, 10, 30 amino acid chains, all the way up to thousands of amino acids in a single polypeptide that can then fold up into very large shapes. Like I said, there are some that we can see them with the naked eye and many that we can't. So it's astronomical, the number of types of proteins that there are. But within the, uh, for instance, an E. coli bacterial cell genome, you might have 5,000 proteins uh, or 5,000 genes or so that the cell makes. And, and a large percentage of those are proteins. But one thing I wanted to point out, and we'll get into this a little bit later, is that it's not just the protein component. Proteins can also be modified by other chemicals in the cell. Those affect their shape and then also affect their, their function. I don't think I've ever seen an estimate personally of like how many types of proteins are in the cell. That's like stars in the universe. Do we know why the shape is so important? You, you mentioned uh, spider silk as a protein. Are those proteins, are the shapes like tube shaped so that they make better ropes or something like that? Or how, what's the mechanism by which the, the shape of a protein expresses its function? Wow, that's a really great question. So in the case of something like a spider silk, spider silk is really strong because the individual protein units, those polypeptides, actually link together in a particular way. So it's their shape and the chemical charges and greasy spots on the surface that then allow them to link together and be really, really strong. So that's, that's what makes spiders be able to spin it out in a long string. And that those interactions, because of the shape of those proteins, help those individual units linked together to create a really strong, you know, spider silk rope. In the case of enzymes, what happens with an enzyme is that a protein will fold into a shape and it has a little pocket called an active site. This could be kind of inside the protein and you need to have substrates be able to fit inside of that pocket. Um, so you might have a phosphate group and a sugar and they have to both bind in there in a particular orientation. And then the enzyme catalyzes a reaction that might connect that phosphate to that sugar group. Um, and then it goes on to do metabolism. So the shape of the outside of the protein affects how proteins interact with each other to then give various functions. They can also create those active sites that allow the, the protein to do chemistry. So if we mess up the shape of that active site or the shape of the outside of the protein, you would create, uh, and we do this regularly in biochemistry and molecular biology, you create mutations in those amino acids and it changes the shape. And it definitely correlates to a change in the function of the proteins that you see. So you would have a spider silk that is no longer as strong, or you would have an enzyme that is much, much poorer at doing the catalysis, or you could create you know, one or a few amino acid changes in a huge, you know, several hundred polypeptide change. And suddenly your protein doesn't fold up into the same shape it used to, but is 
you know, really like a spaghetti mess. Uh, so we, we, we do this all the time in biochemistry. And I guess uh, still trying to get my head around some of this. So a, a small change in the genetic sequence that defines the protein can dramatically change its uh, shape. Um, are similarly shaped proteins, do they tend to have similar characteristics? Or will a slight, a very minor change in the shape have a dramatic effect in how the protein behaves? So related to your previous question about how to categorize them, different type of shape. So actually in computational biology, we have a hierarchical kind of a definition of categorized protein structure into, for example, the first level would be three major families. So alpha only, secondary structure, alpha, alpha helix or beta sheet. And then, but if you go down to the tree, you have over 1600, if I remember correctly, folds. So assume that uh, each fold represents a certain specific structure and the protein belonging to that family will have very similar function. Yeah, I want to kind of add with that. So my background is in biochemistry of strange kind of extremophilic microbes and stuff. So mm -hmm. a lot of what we know about protein structure is from proteins that people can purify yeah. that fold well. Yes. <laughs> so there's, a, there's kind of a huge bias in what we understand about protein structure folds. There's a lot of proteins that we cannot do structural biology on. And this is where, you know, they won't necessarily make nice crystals for X-ray crystallography. They are too big to solve by nuclear magnetic resonance imaging, spectroscopy. Uh, and now we have cryo-EM or cryogenic electron microscopy, and that's a huge help. But there are a lot of proteins in nature that we actually don't know anything about their folds. So of the known folds, there might be, you know, there's very many different classes. And so when there is a commonality in the structure, we make a good assumption that uh, it's probably pretty close. It probably does something pretty similar. On the other hand, when you study weird microbes like I do, a single amino acid change means that instead of doing a phosphotransfer reaction, like I kind of mentioned beforehand, maybe it's a sulfate transfer reaction. So very different element. There might be some size similarities between the molecules, but the consequence of adding a sulfate group to a sugar instead of a phosphate to a sugar has huge consequences in metabolism for the organism. So we, we still are at that level of, we have to actually do biochemistry. We can get pretty close with structural biology and structure predictions, but there's no substitute for making a mutation in an organism or doing a biochemical assay. That's a question I should have asked before. What, what's the scale that we're talking on? Are proteins molecules? I feel like I've been talking a lot, Juan, so you can go ahead. <laughs> so the question is, you asked about, the, is a protein a small molecule? Well, how, how large, how small are proteins? Are they on the scale of molecules? Are they actually themselves molecules? Okay, I'm a bioinformatician. I only handle protein sequences. So I know the protein considered as a big molecule. So the size, if you're talking about the sequence length, could be from like within 100 amino acids to some thousand. So some of them could be very big. My superficial understanding of the protein <laughs> size. Yeah, so um, again, there's a huge variety of how big proteins can be. I'm just, I'm trying to think of, I mean, there are some little antimicrobial peptides, which are proteins, which are, you know, maybe 15 kilodaltons. A dalton is the atomic weight of a hydrogen atom. So pretty small because amino acids are most of them quite small, but there are some proteins that, like I said, are thousands of amino acids long. So 
they can be quite large. And as I was also kind of mentioning in nature, proteins often bind with each other and we have things called like mega complexes. So those can be quite large, but most of them, you know, unless they're, they're made into chains like spider silk, it's not like you can see them with your naked eye. You have to use electron microscopy to see them. Which uh, brings us to the next question, which I think will then turn us to what's going on with this uh, protein folding computational problem. Nicole, you had mentioned a couple of techniques, x-ray crystallography, uh, NMRI. How historically have we figured out what proteins look like, what the fold structure is, and why, why has that been either challenging or limiting? Right. So that's a great question. You know, it, it was really a huge Nobel Prize winning achievement to, to solve the first protein crystal structure. And this is because when we used to think about solving the structure of something, our knowledge beforehand was on things like gemstones and rocks, right? Where you can see this hard thing and, and it's, you know, something like a gemstone, like a diamond, you can shine lasers at it. And what happens is the lasers bounce off of the molecules in that crystal and diffract. And then basically it's mathematical magic to then back calculate using Fourier transform to then figure out where the density of atoms were in space within this crystal. Um, And crystals are because of the atoms that make it up or the molecules that make it up pack in a very regular repeated structure. So you can use the pattern of light diffraction to then find out where atoms were in space and figure out what the structure of that lattice was. So that's a lot easier to do with something like a diamond. And what happens is people tried for ages, decades to be able to figure out how to crystallize biological macromolecules, and they could never really do it. Um, And especially protein. Proteins were super hard. You could do maybe things like some vitamins or something like that, where you could dry them down and crystallize them. And we do that in our organic chemistry lab, but nothing like the proteins, which we know are so important for a biological function. And what happened was they eventually figured out that you had to grow these crystals in an aqueous solution. Uh, So there has to be water in the protein molecules. They have to be hydrated. And then some of them, not all of them, remember, but some of them will start to form regular crystal lattices. So when you look at them under the microscope, they really do look like beautiful little gemstones, just like a diamond, but they're floating in you know, a liquid solution that has water in it. And so we prepare those, do x-ray crystallography. But as I mentioned, x-ray crystallography only works for those proteins that you can purify to a very uh, high purity. That's not always possible. Uh, you have to be able to get a lot of this very pure protein. Sometimes that's very challenging. You have to be able to grow them and then be able to have them be stable enough to put into an x-ray beam to solve the structure. The other, uh, because that was impossible for a lot of things, we also have um, nuclear magnetic resonance, NMR. And NMR uses the magnetic fields of the atoms to then figure out how they're moving in a solution. But because they're all moving, because they're in a liquid milieu, if the protein is too big, it gets way too confusing and you can't really figure out what the the structure of the protein is. There's a a limited uh, size that you can use NMR for, but it does work for very small proteins. And unlike the crystal structure, NMR will give you an idea of how dynamic that protein is and you can heat it up or add other chemicals and see how that structure changes with that changing environment. 
So they're complementary and not the, not the same. And then now there's cryo-EM where people take their pure proteins and cryo-EM can be done with very large protein and protein complexes. And so you can take it and spray it onto a grid and flash freeze it. And the cool thing with cryo-EM is that it doesn't matter or, or it can solve the structures of many different conformations simultaneously because it takes pictures of these crystals and all these different orientations because they're just randomly spewed out on this carbon grid. And it actually uses very sophisticated image processing to then find the patterns in the shapes of those protein pictures. And it it finds how many different types of protein structures there are. Uh, And we can do that with such high resolution now Uh, that it really can rival x-ray crystallography. It's really amazing. And it's only possible because of our image processing capabilities, the computers, the strength of the computers behind it that can solve those structures. And I think that brings us the strength of the computers behind it to the computational approach that uh, really brings us to this topic today. Uh, It's my understanding that this protein folding problem, computational solutions to it, uh, has been thought of as kind of one of the grand challenges of the field for the last 50 years or so. Joanne, can you tell us a little bit about what this computational approach, why it's so difficult and why it's so important? Okay, I actually learned a lot from Nicole in biochemistry. So since the experimental challenges actually created this situation that the structure research kind of couldn't keep pace with the new protein discovery, right? So we know that every day you discover some new protein in the database. We basically have over 100 millions of different type of protein there, but we only have over 200,000 of structure available. So then to fill the gap, as you said, like 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, biologists start to turn to computational prediction, especially to handle those difficult cases. But uh, then there's many of methodology emerged since then, and then they actually already improved the field dramatically. However, this, uh, this early computational method, they kind of rely on this first principle in physics as a basis. So they need a well-defined entity function, which you can explicitly kind of uh, describe the force field potential between all atoms in the protein. So, but searching for a very optimal structure against a, a huge solution space that capture all the confirmation changes, right, is already a very challenging task. So the complexity goes dramatically higher when the protein are much longer. So that's why the performance of computational kind of prediction for a long time was not a satisfactory kind of in many of the cases. We kind of get stuck, yeah, with this very slow progress for a long time. So let's turn to what Google actually has done. Uh, Joanne, can you try to help us understand November, I think, of uh, 2020? There was this big announcement that Google had solved, uh, I just put that in air quotes, the protein folding problem. What did Google do? Okay, so uh, people may already hear a lot about this company of DeepMind, right? So they try to develop all kinds of software, smart system, to have some human-like intelligence. So solve a lot of problems, as you may hear AlphaGo, right? So have those uh, uh, computers, they can play Go games against kind of world-class uh, master. So, but then now they are focused, they try to apply AI technology, all kind of Google kind of product, but this is for the first time they try to tackle a scientific kind of a, uh, challenges. 
So then they devised this alpha fold, which is an AI software that utilizes deep learning technology so that you can predict a protein structure directly from an amino acid sequence. So technically, this uh, software includes two major components, right? The first part represents a neural network kind of architecture with fine parameter tuning, which can read the protein sequence from one side, and on the other side, they output the all kinds of pairwise distance between amino acid in the protein. And then the second model, then they try to construct an optimal kind of a 3D structure based on those predicted distances. So to train the model, actually the team have to utilize existing sequence and the structure data to optimize all the parameter. Then with this uh, alpha fold, uh, the company participate uh, this uh, biannual kind of uh, competition in the protein structure prediction called CASP, right? short for mm -hmm. critical assessment of protein structure prediction kind of uh, uh, challenges. So then uh, they won the first uh, kind of places in 2018 and 2020, and then among all hundreds, hundreds of different teams. So I think compared to the previous computational method, AlphaFold only needs take sequence, right, for prediction. And then it doesn't utilize any of solved structure as a template, which is a good aspect. And then one very unique uh, feature eventually contribute to the success is that they utilize the multiple sequence alignment as a feature representation. So basically they allow you to learn some useful information from group of protein, which with similar sequences and associate similar structure instead of just a single pairs of sequence and structure alone. So I think this helps a lot improve the distance prediction. We know that um, it's just like a baby, right? It's a baby brain, you can learn kind of discriminative features from dog and cats when you have seen large numbers of them. So the learning kind of a model doesn't need much of uh, interference from the human side where our knowledge probably is still very limited and biased. So I think uh, that is uh, the, the nature of this system. Is DeepMind really taking the right approach to thinking about or solving this problem? The way DeepMind has been solving this is a very smart, good way to do it. It's you know applying machine learning to it. So it's comparing the structures that we have with each other and learning from those things. So it's finding those most common folds. But biology, as I always teach my students, is all about the exceptions. So, so it's only giving you the most likely, but not necessarily reflecting what is actually the case or what's really happening in the cell. And if you think actually about what I think, if, if artificial intelligence is really going to solve the protein problem, it would seek to, as much as possible, approximate how cells actually do this. And so when cells actually produce protein, they produce it a, a single amino acid at a time. And those nascent brand new baby polypeptides as they're coming off of the ribosome already start to fold even before the full sequence has been synthesized. And there are also things like protein chaperones that bind to those nascent polypeptides and traffic them or move them to different subcellular compartments. Uh, and that has a much larger effect on the ultimate protein folding than even that primary sequence, like if you're considering the sequence um, de novo all at once. So time, in other words, time is important. 
and none of the none of the algorithms really kind of consider that. I consider the alpha fold method as sort of like cheating that by saying, well, these were all produced in a yeast or an E. coli or something. Mm-hmm. So kind of accounts for that. But what I mean by time is really important is that if you synthesize a protein at different rates, it will fold differently. So it sounds like, as with most uh, artificial intelligence, what the DeepMind system did with AlphaFold is, I, I don't mean to diminish what it did by any means, but it, it's complex statistics. It's finding correlations, looking at existing protein structures that we know the sequences for, and using that to predict other shapes that we'll get from protein sequences. So instead it isn't telling us this is how the folding mechanism works so that we better understand the mechanism but it is telling us with a high level of accuracy without knowing the mechanism we can tell you what the resulting protein is going to look like and i guess i'm going to ask a compound question is this actually solving the protein folding problem and second does it matter uh is it important for us to understand the mechanism or from a research perspective is a useful thing, understanding what the shapes are so that we can use them for further research. Yes. Uh, I think overall it solved the problem. (laughs) As claimed in the CASP competition and then the Nature paper result, actually, if you see the performance, um, the evaluation matrix, more than 90, kind of uh, uh, the score they get there, uh, it's considered equivalent to the experimental kind of structure you can decide. And sometimes in some of the cases, they even think the discrepancy between the prediction and the experimental kind of ground truth, maybe it's actually reflect that artifact experimentally. But uh, there's some limitation. First of all, there's still some room for the performance improvement because uh, in the original work, still have 40% of the structure are not very reliable. So this is actually quite critical because when you handle some novel bacterium or a virus, right, where they might have some unique new folds and a structure you never observe in other species. So the knowledge, of course, is not learned by the system yet. And then the second thing is that um, the technology kind of uh, changed the way, revolutionized the way, how we look at the, the protein structure, but then they don't solve the problem entirely. So you can think about the static protein structure, you can either solve it experimentally or predict it by the computational tool. They are snapshot, right? They don't have much of information about the dynamics. Uh, how the confirmation change actually over time. So we believe computationally the future efforts moving the system up to be able to predict the protein-protein interaction is actually more important in many disciplines, including drug design. I think uh, Nico also mentioned that for novel species, right? So it doesn't cover that exceptions yeah, in that sense. So here, of course, the prediction, as I said, is static. It doesn't reflect the mechanism, the dynamic mechanism behind it. And what will the practical payoffs be? How will this affect research in this field? And I expect from Google's perspective, they don't care about the protein folding problem. This is a AI research problem. So they've done incredible work there and a great accomplishment for artificial intelligence research. But in, in terms of molecular biology, how is this going to affect that field? One way that this improved structure function prediction moves the field forward is by helping with drug design, for instance. If you can skip the step of having to crystallize the protein and get a really high approximation of the structure for something like a drug receptor 
or uh, if you want to design an inhibitor to something that's involved with cancer, for instance, this would decrease that discovery time because you wouldn't have to solve that crystal structure. You could make very good approximations and spend more time designing your or screening chemical libraries that fit better or designing new organic chemical molecules to inhibit or something like that. So that's one one way I think maybe more in medicine that it might be very helpful. Another kind of interesting way I think would be really cool to see, I bet it's you know upcoming through the pipeline, is on things like uh, nanomaterial synthesis when people try to make particular shapes with proteins. Again, we talk about the solution space for like the individual chain of amino acids. It's mind-bogglingly complicated to try to think, how is that going to fold? But now we could probably use DeepMind and say, you know, if I wanted to put a hairpin right here on this protein to then be a handle for some other interaction, or if I want to make something, make a ribbon uh, to fit a particular shape, this would have helped dramatically with finding sequences that maybe have the type of shape that you want to find and then designing those cool shapes and structures. So sort of nanomaterials, nanorobots at that subcellular scale, I think it, it might spur some of that type of discovery for sure. So I, I love it. Uh, the, just the description. Uh, am I right? A, a hairpin would just be like a 90 degree bend and a ribbon is like a corkscrew. Yeah. Yeah. A helix would be like a corkscrew. But what if you wanted to make crazier shapes, like, I don't know, big old circles or, you know, more regular globules, or I, I don't know, I, you know, this is where people could get really creative doing things like that. I don't know. I'm imagining now, I, I'm, I'm certain, based upon Goodall's incompleteness theorem, that there are more uh, possible expressions of proteins than exist in nature. Um, so there there are artificial ones that we could figure out, this has never existed before. What if we were to make this? What would the effects be? And new new domains of research. Joanne, I'd, I'd like to ask you the same question. How will this affect our research? Yeah, I agree with Nico that uh, having fold being able to solve the structure much faster and more precisely, of course, it will create a revolution kind of in the field, right? That kind of release us from the lab struggles. And then so we can focus on more important questions. So as I can imagine in the drug design field, right? So if you can uh, and then get a structure in any type of protein, in any other individual, especially those subjects to kind of a, a genetic modification, right? So then you can focus on really, really more advanced questions. For example, complex diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's, they are caused by protein. Um, and then you can study the structural difference between the disease state and the normal state, right? Then you can study infer actually the functional shift and then what are the potential interactive molecule? So that help you uncover the entire uh, kind of a mechanism in a very effective way. So in, from that sense, definitely this is a game kind of a game changer in the in medicine field. Uh, I agree for novel species, for example, uh, where we have very limited knowledge, right? So, but uh, this still provide us a tool what, which quite promising and easy to access, right? To to gain understanding towards uh, function once we get the sequence done, because right, sequencing te technology is more well established and more mature, so we can easily get the sequence and then study the structure and then the function. Follow that line of kind of uh, uh, research. So after all, having an easier way to determine if there's a genetic modification can have any influence on the structure or the function. 
is clearly very helpful. How would you, if you were talking to a, a grad student in these fields, how would the developments here over the last year or so affect the advice that you would give to an aspiring grad student and aspiring a PhD in these fields for the direction their research might go? I think this depends on which discipline the students get involved, right? So just from computational aspect, right? Because there are so many research groups uh, specialized in the protein structure prediction, right? So this will sound very disruptive to them because it looks like a problem largely solved and then people should leave from here. But actually, it's not. We are not going to replace scientists by this uh, highly efficient computational prediction yet because there are so many more important questions uh, related to protein beyond the structure. You should know the function, you should know the mechanism, and then the dynamics, the interactions, right? So they all need to uh, require a large kind of lab efforts. From computational aspect, there's more important question, as we said, you should do molecular dynamics, right? So to understand over time how the structure change and interact with others, and then to realize the, the true function. So there's a lot of computational work you should do. So I think this field probably will remain the same. It's just very fundamental structure prediction. Probably we don't need that much effort anymore. But there's a lot of high levels of questions yeah, to be discovered. In my research lab, we work with sort of extremophile microbes that uh, there's not a lot like them. They do very strange biochemistry and molecular biology. And the questions we've been asking for a long time relate a lot more to protein-protein interactions. How do these bigger proteins come together to then create a living system? Uh, and so these are still questions that can't be solved by AlphaFold and may, may never be because we're talking really big complexes. We're talking about gene regulation. It's always been really nice when we have a crystal structure or a decent prediction to go off of. And so those lead to, to great knowledge moving forward. But a lot of the things when we're talking about trying to synthesize new biochemicals and create bioenergy using strange microbes, we're still going to try to have to create mutations on the genome and we're going to look at the function. And so those types of experiments are independent of a protein structure function, uh, but it does give us a lot more confidence if a good approximation is available gives us more confidence that I can convince a graduate student that it's a good project. <laughs> what are the limitations of this solution to the protein folding problem and this technology generally? So AlphaFold is fantastic. It's a huge leap forward in this field and will help a whole lot of people in their research progress. But there are some key things that it doesn't quite solve very well. Um, one of these things is post-translational modifications. So cells also control protein function by modifying them with things like a methyl group or an acetate molecule or a phosphate group. And adding those modifications can turn a, an enzyme on or off or will make it possible for a protein to interact with another protein. And those are really key interactions in the cell that affect behavior of the cell. That's what's involved in stress signaling chemotaxis or, or movement of a cell, uh, swimming type of behaviors, things like that. So AlphaFold does not predict those types of modifications, what might be modified, what wouldn't be modified, how the structure would change when it was modified. 
a lot of proteins that we're interested in in medicine and other areas of biology, proteins can be modified with sugar groups and, and things like that, like cell surface proteins, cell surface receptors, viral entry proteins, things like that, right? So when we don't have an idea of, man, what is, what is that carbohydrate structure doing on, on the surface of that protein and how, what is the structure of that? Um, those are things that are really important to understand in medicine uh, and AlphaFold does not predict those. AlphaFold also doesn't predict uh, whether or not a cofactor or coenzyme or metal, so an accessory group. So something that's not part of the polypeptide chain, but is essential for a protein or enzyme function, uh, it won't predict it. It might kind of get the general fold, but it won't tell you that there needs to be a zinc atom there. Uh, so if you were trying to do biochemistry or, or thinking again about how this enzyme affects cell growth and physiology, alpha fold won't be able to tell you, uh, but you might be able to get some of those clues from the related structures that fold. So there's, there's really quite a, quite a few things related to that. It also doesn't talk about huge uh, multi-enzyme complexes. So things like the photosynthetic apparatus, which is many, many polypeptides organized together in a very or you know structured way that allows us to get energy from sunlight or allows plants to do that efficiently. We want to understand that to create efficient biofuels in lots of other different organisms, for instance. So AlphaFold isn't going to help with that because those are still too big and involves too many components to what are essentially like molecular protein machines that cells have. So we talk uh, a lot about technology putting folks out of jobs. It sounds like this isn't an area where technology will be putting folks out of jobs anytime soon. Another thing that we talk about with technology, which is the, the last question that we have to touch on, is are there any ethical concerns raised by this technology that we, we should be thinking about as we continue to go down this path? I think one thing I can think of is that... Um once the structure prediction become so effortless, so we can easily test uh, all kinds of protein at any moment, then like how human uh, genetic variability used in the personalized medicine, right? So structure variability in protein will be able to help kind of uh, create a decision towards treatment and the intervention, which may cause ethic concerns in safety, privacy, or fairness. So, in an extreme case, you can imagine a person may not uh, get a certain treatment because of the predicted structure doesn't seem to be targetable by the drug, right? So those are the situations we need to be aware of. And then the other issue is that uh, they just sound very disruptive to the field, but uh, it will not change dramatically. Well, one concern, it's, it's always the case, like with any knowledge comes responsibility. And if you have people who want to use that knowledge for not good purposes, we, we would have to worry about that. So that's always going to be the case. At the same time, though, it, it's a great leap forward that will help people in drug design, you know, treating illnesses, uh, designing new biofuels that will help, you know, improve our global climate so that, you know, we're not spewing so much CO2 and things like that. Um, so you take the good with the bad. And we do have a lot of federal regulations that guide the kind of research that we do. So I don't think, I'm not an expert in this per se, but just because we have a improved protein structure prediction, I don't think that the current federal guidelines would have to be revised. 
So that that's a good sign. But it's definitely, as Juan said, you know, we, we have to think about what information went into the database and how we would use that, especially what we're talking about human health concerns. Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at unl underscore ngtc.